So that's Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephroth. Zephon. Uh, Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Egyptians go and have lost their service. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with the officials over over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hafiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have, we, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered, answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry ground. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. 
The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Phil, uh, one of the, uh, the ministers on staff here, and it's a joy to be with you again. It's been a while. We've got a lot of verses to get through. I'm going to speak quickly if you promise to concentrate hard and we'll see how we go. Uh, I'm aware some of you have to get to work in the morning. Uh, so we'll see how we go. Just the 42 verses. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it reveals you, our God. We pray that our hearts would be filled with love and joy and delight as we learn more of your character tonight. 
Amen. Look, when we, uh, when we last saw the Israelites, they had just been rescued from Egypt. And you know, nobody really enjoys camping for a long time in wilderness. But when you've been worked to death as slaves, I think even living in tents on a long-term basis seems like a pretty good life. So they're pretty happy. They've been rescued. They're out of Egypt. But actually, it's, we can't just go back to, to there. We need to stretch our minds back a little bit further if we're to get this bit of the story right. So if you've read the Bible before, you'll know that way back in Genesis 12, God made promises to Abraham and said, I will bless your descendants, and through them I will bless all the peoples of the world. And in particular, God said, I will make your descendants a great nation. I will give you a land to live in, and I will be your God. And 400 years before the Exodus, when Joseph, the first of the Israelites to go down into Egypt, if you can remember um, back to our previous series in Genesis, Joseph had said right at the end of his life, look, don't bury me in Egypt because God has promised that we will go to our promised land. So don't bury me in Egypt. And if you look in chapter 13 on page 71 and down at verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. God is a faithful God. And Joseph was so confident that God would be a faithful God that he said, I know it'll be 400 years, but I know it will happen, so take my coffin. And so as they leave Egypt with Joseph's coffin on a cart, there's a sort of rattling reminder of his long-dried bones that this is a faithful God. You can trust this God as they march out into the desert, uh, free out of Egypt. And tonight, as we rejoin the story, God is going to do what he's been doing throughout Exodus, which is he's going to reveal himself. He's revealing himself to the Israelites as the God who saves. He's revealing himself to the Egyptians as the judge who destroys. He's revealing himself to the surrounding nations as a God unlike any they've met. And he's revealing himself to you and to me through his word as we come face to face with him. But of course, as we come face to face with the God of this passage, we are faced with a choice ourselves, which is this passage says some great stuff, God the saviour. It also says God the judge who destroys. And we have this choice. Do I just ignore the bits that in this cultural moment, my society says I don't like? The bits that perhaps I don't resonate with as an individual. What do we do? And it's, uh, it's been my prayer this week that we will respond as Moses and Miriam responded to God as he was revealed in this passage, which is they praised him. Not just for some bits of his character, but for all of it. They praise him for who he is. And I hope that we'll do the same thing. Okay, let's dive in um, to chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth, or however on earth you pronounce that, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon, wherever that is. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. And said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their service. Uh, One little thing. Uh, Again and again we've seen this in Exodus. Uh, God is totally sovereign. Even over the decisions of Pharaoh. And yet they change their minds as well. 
Uh, Pharaoh's not forced to do something against his will. He wants to do it, but God remains sovereign. It's a wonderful thing. Not even wicked people are outside the control of our good God. But it's, uh, the bigger question is, why on earth does God do this? He could have just, you know, they walk to the Red Sea, Red Sea splits, they walk through, everything's fine. Why do they need the whole kind of pursued by a bloodthirsty chariot army bent on vengeance thing? It's unnecessary. Why does it happen? It would be so much simpler. Go to the sea, sea splits, walk through, job done. But it never goes like that with God, does it? Have you noticed that in your own life? That God never seems to take the easy, obvious path. He's, he always seems to have a messy way for us. Why? Because God has things to teach us, things that we never seem to learn when life is comfortable and easy. God has things to teach us about what a wonderful and glorious God he is. God has things to reveal to us about himself, but also he has things to reveal to us about ourselves, ugly things in our hearts that he wants to change. And the truth is those things never change in the good times. And so often we find the weird and wonderful paths that God has taken us on are because God has something bigger and something better in mind than just your comfort and ease. He is making something of you. Something that he cannot make of you if life remains easy. Suffering is the furnace. Difficulties is the furnace through which God changes us and does things. And here, there is a specific reason given. And these things are really useful because uh, we learn from all the specific reasons given in Scripture of why God does the weird things he does. We learn the source of God he is so that when we face confusion in our life, we're armed in our minds with lots of ways that God works so that we think, I don't know why he's doing this to me, but I know he's the sort of God who does this and does this and does this. And his reasons are good. And his ways are good. And so I'll trust him even though I don't know why things are like this. We get a specific reason here. If you look down at verse 18, um, it appears in verse 4. And then at the heart of the passage, it appears in verse 18. Why is God doing this? The Egyptians, verse 18, will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God's plans and purposes are far greater than just the fate of the children of Israel. He wants Israel to know him as the God of salvation. He wants Egypt to know him as the God of judgment. And he wants the nations to know him as the God who does it all. God has got something more important than just getting the Israelites out. You see in, um, in 6 to 7 how it starts to play out. Turn back one page. Uh, verse 6. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over them. The elite of the elite, this is their SAS, this is their stealth bombers. The chariots were the superpower of the day. You had chariots, you won. That's basically the way it panned out. And you can imagine the Israelites, um, they're camped out at the Red Sea. So you've got the sea over there, massive camp of Israelites, and then wilderness on the other side. So getting used to the rhythms of life in a campsite, what a joy. And uh, you can imagine people at the back end of the campsite uh, sort of foraging in the desert for all the stuff you need. um, Collecting firewood, trying to find water insects to eat, all the usual fun and games. And uh, some bloke, you know, collecting firewood and sees billowing dust cloud in the distance. Looks up, a bit of a storm. But there's something glinting all along the base of the dust cloud. 
So he scrambles up the scree slope to have a better look, straining to see through the sort of shimmering heat of the desert. And slowly, slowly as he stares, things come into focus. And the, the glittering, the shimmering resolves itself into clear figures. You can imagine the dawning horror as he realizes what it is and runs back into the camp. Run, flee, Pharaoh's coming, the chariots, we're going to be killed. And everybody wants to run, but where do you run to? There's the sea there and there's Pharaoh's chariots there. There is nowhere to run. Death is coming one way and death is waiting for you the other way. So instead they cry out, verse 10, The Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Uh, No, I don't think you did actually. That that very phrase, crying out, was exactly the one used in chapter 3. When they were crying out to God, save us from the Egyptians. We're being worked to death. We're going to die. Save us. But it's amazing. Have you ever noticed this? That if the journey's rubbish, you kind of forget why you left. As soon as things get difficult, we look back with rose-tinted spectacles. And you and I are very similar to the Israelites so often. You know, life only has to get a bit grim, difficult. And we find ourselves grumbling against God. We forget how good he's been in our salvation. We forget what a mess life was when we were living in our sin. The pain and the confusion and the mess we caused. But when life gets hard, we we just look back and, oh, it wasn't so bad, was it? We're very stupid. But Moses tells them off. Verse 13, this is not a comfort. This is a smackdown. This is not... There, there, don't worry, it'll be all right. This is, you idiot, shut up, stand still and stop being so pathetic. That's the tone of voice. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The tension then rises as it cuts back as you heard in the reading, cuts back from scene to scene. So as Moses stands on the seashore, God affirms again his purposes. He will rescue Israel and he will reveal himself to the Egyptians. And then just as Moses is raising his staff over the sea, it cuts back and we turn to what's happening at the other end of the camp. Verse 19, then the angel of God who'd been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. 
The pillar of fire and cloud, that symbol of God's presence, goes behind to protect them. But if you remember Exodus, it's an ominous, ominous note. Do you remember back, what was the ninth plague? It was a plague of darkness. Darkness over Egypt and light over where the Israelites lived. And what comes after the plague of darkness? The judgment of death. Again, it is dark over Egypt. It is light over Israel. And the death of God's judgment is coming. It is an ominous, ominous note. Back now to Moses, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Okay, did God break the laws of nature, or did God use the law of nature? Which is it? In many ways, our biggest question when we come to this passage. You know, when it says in, uh, in verse 21 that there was a strong east wind blowing, does that mean that uh, there was some natural phenomenon, some weird wind that blew the sea back so that by the morning there was, uh, there was dry land for them to walk through, but you know, nothing freaky or weird had happened. The, the miracle, if you like, was the timing that as Moses lifts his rod, uh, God causes the wind to blow. Or... Or verse 22, where it says there's a wall of water on the right and on the left. Is it saying, the God who made the laws of nature stuck a spoke in the wheel of the system and did something freaky, something impossible, and made water stand with a corridor between it? I have no idea. I may be older than most of you here. I wasn't there. It was a long time ago. And frankly, if the writer really wanted us to know, he'd have made it clear. It doesn't really matter. What is clear is that God worked in a mighty, awesome, impressive, unstoppable way. What is clear as well is that whenever God works to save people, it requires an extraordinary work of God. Throughout the Bible, when God saves people, it requires something extraordinary. And thirdly, look what God will do. God will do whatever is necessary to save his people. If the sea needs to be split to save his people, well, he'll split the sea. That's the kind of God you want to trust in. It's the kind of God you want on your side. And verse 23, then, we get to, well, wonderful but also awful verses. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away, literally flee from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may flow back over the Egyptians, their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Can you imagine the relief of the Israelites? Certain death, drown or be cut to pieces, that's it. And then God splits the sea. 
Can you imagine what it would have been like to get to the, the other shore, having walked through an ocean, your legs quivering, and to be safe on the other side? Can you imagine what it would have been like for the, the last few thousand, as they see the Egyptian chariots charging through after them, and yet to get to the other side and watch the water crash back together, and to see those who would kill you, who would destroy you, gone forever? Can you imagine the terror of being an Egyptian? Utter confidence in your might. A slave army, unarmed, and in your chariots. And then to see the sea split. And you charge after them, only to find the chariots failing, the wheels literally coming off. And then to realise, too late, that awful realisation, flee, the Lord is fighting against us. To know too late there is a God in Israel. A God unlike any of the gods we've known. And he is fighting against us and for them. And to realize that the sea will not serve you. And God will not save you. Why does the writer go back to repeat things though in 29 to 31? Now we know they went through on dry ground. We know about the walls of water. So why repeat it? Well... Very simply, they didn't have bold capitals underlined and italics in Hebrew. So if you want to emphasize something, you use the structure to do it. And so the mentions of the walls of the water and the Israelites crossing um, in verse 22 and then in 29. So the, the, the bread of the sandwich pointing you into the meat, the bit in the middle. Having uh, told us in verse 18 about God's plan to reveal himself, we see then in the middle, verse 25, let's get away, flee from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. God had said, I will be known. And God is known. It's an awful truth to learn if you're his enemy. But God will be known. Well, chapter 15 then is a song about chapter 14. And the point is that salvation is just too good to speak about it. Uh, You have to sing. When you face certain death and God has miraculously saved you, you don't write a creed. You sing a song. Writing prose is just not good enough. You need something more emotionally engaged. You need poetry, song to express your delight. See, Christians are singing people because we're saved people. It doesn't really matter how you do it. You can be a hearty, organ-led hymn with a stiff English spine rocking backwards and forwards with your hands in your pockets. It can be a kind of stripped-back acoustic guitar. Or it can be grungy, somebody committing GBH against the drum kit, hammering it out, the whole place going ballistic. It doesn't matter. The style doesn't matter. The point is that Christians, because of what God has done, because of what God has done, To be a Christian is to be the sort of person where if the authorities said, you're allowed to evangelize people, you're allowed to preach from the Bible, you're allowed to pray, but you are not allowed to sing in church, we would have to say, well, I'll go to prison. There is no way, absolutely no way I cannot sing when this God has done what he's done for me. And so verse, uh, chapter 15, throughout the Bible you get these salvation episodes followed by songs because it's so good to be saved. Sadly, I, 
most modern songs fall very, very short of what goes on here. Most modern songs, Christian songs, you'll know this. Not this church, but I'm sure you'll have had experience of this sort of thing. The one, two, three song. One word, two notes for three hours. Yeah, you've been there as well. Uh, it's just shallow, trite nonsense. But here, it is rich and it is deep. And it's very little about me and very much about God and who he is and what he has done. I think there's a, you can see a, a number of themes. Um, firstly, the mighty power of God. There is just a sense of awe and wonder at who God is and what he's done. Uh, look at um, the start. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. Verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? There is an awe at who God is. Secondly, there's just a delight in the destruction, the judgment of God's enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Verse 9, the enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Five times the enemy says, I will, I will. All talk, no action. One verb, God, blue, gone. Now we're very happy with singing to God for his salvation. We're less happy about singing about his judgment. You know, we feel a bit embarrassed usually as Christians. God judging? Shouldn't God just, you know, be forgiving? Until, of course, we encounter a judge who does just forgive. And then we're not so happy. There's, I don't know if you saw in the papers this week. Um, when I start telling the story, you'll think I read it in the Daily Mail. I didn't. Um, but uh, it was a classic criminal story. Two thugs. Um, they'd had an argument with a guy, punched him when he wasn't looking, and then while he was on the ground, kicked his head in until he was unconscious, bleeding mess, hospitalized him. And in court, they blubbed their eyes out about, oh, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we've never done things like this. And the judge said, okay, I'll, I think you're very contrite, I'll, I'll let you go. And then there are pictures of them outside the court, cheering to their friends, high-fiving each other, tweeting about magic, what a laugh. And you think, hang on a second, that's just wrong. I don't want a judge to let people like that get away with it. You want a judge to bring justice. And that is what God does here. It is right to praise God for justice. For protecting a slave nation against a murderous army. That is a good thing he does. Thirdly, there is a real joy at the fact that this God is a relational, loving, faithful God who saved his people. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 17. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. 
verse 17, he talks about what God will do after saving his people from Egypt. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. In other words, he doesn't save like a lifeguard. Uh, So the way I swim, lifeguards start jumping in the pool anywhere I'm near. I've never been rescued by a lifeguard, but I do swim like a lead weight. But a lifeguard, you get rescued by a lifeguard, they save you, they get you out the pool and they leave you. They don't take you home. It's a lifeguard. (laughs) It's not like that with God. So friends, uh, good friends, a number of here will know him. Uh, they, they've got a family and they adopted a little boy from a terribly horrific, abusive background. And then a few years later, the parents um, had another child, a little girl. And she too was, you just don't even want to imagine what her life was like with these abusive people. And the social worker said, please, would you save her too? And they said, yeah, we'd love to. And so they took her. And they brought her into their home. They adopted her as their child. They allowed her to call them mummy and daddy. They share everything they have with her. And she will be theirs and they are hers for the rest of her life. And that is what God does with us. He doesn't save us like a lifeguard. He adopts us as our father. And that is worth singing about. Okay, so what? Uh, So what difference does all of this nonsense, you know, you told us what the Bible says, not nonsense at all, what do I mean? I'm tired. uh, What does all this wonderful stuff actually mean? It's all very good, you know, learning what the Bible means. But what is it, what difference does it make for you tomorrow? What difference does this make? Well, the first thing is something negative. It means there isn't such a thing for us as a holy war. Now, we're pretty nervous of religious texts that seem to advocate a warrior God. We don't like it. We shift uncomfortably in our chairs when we read, the Lord is a warrior. I think, had enough religious war, thanks. It, you know, especially now, it doesn't even look like the, the front line somewhere over there in you know, savage places. It's Western Europe. Our own capital cities are where the fight is. But actually, this is an anti-jihad text. Turn back to chapter 15, uh, chapter 14, verse 15. I'm losing my mind. In chapter 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. This is not a God who commands his people to fight for him. This is a God who said, don't fight. I will fight for you. It's the very opposite. In Romans 12, we're commanded not to fight for God. Instead, we're told, quote, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So you do not so the Christians in Nigeria who've had their villages burned, their relatives butchered, their daughters kidnapped. God says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can God tell them to do that? Well, partly he can tell them to do that because they know that the God of the Bible is a God who one day will bring perfect justice. He's not saying, let people get away with it. He's saying, don't you take vengeance. Leave it to me to protect my people. Leave it to me to bring justice. And one day he will. But until that day, Christians must never, ever talk about holy war. This is not a God who we fight for. He fights for us. There can be just wars in this world. It's a 
a wicked world. And sometimes when wicked people have arms, good people have to take up arms to fight against them. I think there can be just wars, but there can never be a holy war for us. Okay, but what does it mean? Um, Well, in both chapters, the structure of the text points us to basically the same idea. Uh, We saw that in chapter 14. It's all about the, the Egyptians coming to know that the Lord God is the Lord. Now look at uh, chapter 15. You'll see again there's a sort of sandwich pattern that points us to the middle. So verse 1 and verse 21, you can see they're the same. As Miriam reprises the song, verse 21, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he's hurled into the sea. Same as verse 1, pointing us to the middle verse. Verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory? working wonders. And the theme of the song is that God has triumphed over his enemies. And in particular, uh, look at verse um, 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Why the stress on the horse and the rider? I think this is very interesting. If the point is God is the one true God and has shown himself to be the ultimate God, why not stress that the Lord has won victory over Anubis and Osiris and Ra, the gods of Egypt. Why stress that he's got victory over the chariots and the horsemen? It just seems a bit odd. But then the chariots and the horses were, in many ways, the real gods of Egypt, just as much as Anubis and Ra. You ask Pharaoh, what makes you think you're going to triumph over the Israelites? He doesn't take you to the temple and show you his gods. He takes you to the armory and shows you his chariots and horses. Functionally, his trust, his power rested in the fact that I have chariots. And when the Bible says Jesus Christ alone is Lord God, it doesn't mean, it doesn't just mean, in the world of spiritual ideas, Jesus is the best and the richest spirituality. It means in the universe, Jesus is supreme. He rules the weather. He rules geopolitics. He determines the outcome of wars. He rules over your finances and your health and your travel. It means he is God of the things that we see as religious and he is God of the things that we see as real. He is God of everything. Whether we acknowledge a God or not, that's what it means. And that's why... When it says he has triumphed over the chariots and the horses, he's saying he is God unlike everything else. He is a real God. He's God over the, the idols of Egypt and he's God over the, prag- the practical gods of Egypt. He alone is God. But if you'll allow me to be crass for a second, what a fat lot of use it is for the Egyptians to learn that. I mean, what's the point in learning that God is the one true God if you... L- can't do anything about it because that truth is a tsunami coming to wipe you out. (laughs) What are you supposed to do with that? How is that good news? Well, for the answer for that, I think we need to fast forward 1,400 years in the Bible to a time when the word flee that is used in verse 25 and 27, flee from from the God of Israel, when that word is used again some 1,400 years later. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 7, a guy called John the Baptist has stood on the banks of the Jordan River and he tells the people, flee the wrath to come. But he's not talking about a wave coming down the river. What's he talking about? He's talking about the coming of Jesus. 
which seems very odd to describe that as the coming of wrath. But John the Baptist knew that the one coming after him, Jesus, would be the God of Exodus, that God, the judge in human flesh. And so he said, if God the judge is coming, you better run. You'd better run. You'd better flee. But just as at the Red Sea, God opened up a way of salvation when Jesus came. He didn't split the sea, if you like, he split his son. Because Jesus came to judge, but he came to judge by taking the judgment on himself rather than on you and on me. He hung on a cross and took the death that we deserve so that now we flee the wrath to come, not by running away from God the judge, but by running to him. You can't outrun God. But if we run to him, we find that the judge has brought us forgiveness. The judge has died in our place as our substitute. And so if we run back to him, we find forgiveness and life. And that death has been dealt with and a way to God has been opened up for us. Flee the wrath to come. Don't flee from God, flee to him. And the crossing of the Red Sea is then uh, taken up in the New Testament by Jesus' apostles as a picture, a model of salvation. So 1 Corinthians 10.2 says, uh, for them going through the Red Sea is like uh, for us going uh, through the waters of baptism. Not that uh, we're pursued by a chariot army, but we are pursued by death. Not that we face uh, slavery in Egypt, but we do face slavery to our sinful desires that none of us seem to be, to be able to overpower. There is no escape from the death that's coming. But Jesus has opened a way through death and his resurrection to eternal life. And this way of salvation in Jesus Christ is even better and richer than the Red Sea. Because this is a way for all nations. In Revelation 15, uh, we read verse 3. They sang the song of Moses, that's this song, and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. That is the song of heaven, the song of Moses, but it's now a song for all nations. And so tonight, it really doesn't matter what culture or religion or tradition you come from. If you put your trust in God, if you flee towards God, the warrior, the judge, then you can know him. Not as the Egyptians knew him, as the judge who would destroy, but as the Israelites knew him, as the saviour who would rescue And you can be as safe from sin and death if you trust in Jesus as the Israelites were safe from Pharaoh once they were on the seashore. (laughs) What could Pharaoh do to them then? He's crushed, drowned under 10,000 fathoms of water. And that is how safe we are from our slavery to sin and the death we deserve. And that's why if you know Jesus, you'll be a singing person. If you know him, you'll be a singing person. To know how impossible salvation was, how desperate our predicament was, how unbreakable my addiction to sin and how terrifying the onset of death is, 
And to see Jesus die for us, pay for us, open the way to freedom and eternal life. Makes you want to sing. So look back to salvation. Remember what God has done for you. You see, the Christians, the Christians I know who are able to look forward with confidence and faith are the ones who look back regularly with thankfulness and gratitude to what God has done in Jesus. The Christians I know who, who are bold and joyful in telling other people about Jesus are the ones who tell each other, encourage each other to remember what God has done for them in Jesus Christ on the cross. Be singing people. Uh, you know the old saying, uh, all the different ideologies and religions of the world are all paths up a mountain. You know that? You know, whether you're atheist or Confucian or Buddhist, Baha'i, whatever. It's all just paths up the same mountain to the one truth. Um, all of us are on a sort of journey and we'll all encounter God. And that is just absolute and utter truth. Absolutely truth. All of us are on a journey. And all of us will one day meet God but that really is not the most important thing the most important thing for you tonight and for your friends and family and colleagues is will I meet this God as my saviour my father or will I meet this God as my judge that's what matters And if you trust in Jesus, you can know him as your saviour. And tomorrow morning, as you go out into the world, to university or work, you go out amongst people who do not know the Lord Jesus, and you have that message of salvation. As you go home in the evening or out with friends, you go amongst people who do not know this Jesus and his salvation, and who need him. We need to give ourselves to telling others with great joy, that Jesus is salvation. Perhaps in a few years' time, the Skype interview will be with you, for there are hundreds of millions around the world who live in countries where there is no functional church to tell them about Jesus. There are over a billion who live in countries without functional theological education to train the church leaders and the evangelists. Perhaps out of joy at what Jesus has done, some here will go. One day we will all meet Jesus. And if you know him tonight, then you'll want to do everything you can to make sure that for others, it is a meeting with their saviour, not their judge. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you are a God of salvation. And we pray that you would help us to trust you. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with joy at all you have done. Amen.